Good evening, dandies. Welcome to Undetermined, the podcast. Well, cheers, gentlemen. How are you? Good. Ah, well, and yourself? Now that I have a martini in hand, I'm much better. <laughs> yes. Yes, made myself a little bourbon and coke. Good for you. Good, Good for you. Same. <laughs> I got to go to work in a couple of hours. I, yeah. I made coffee. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to just going to have the wine anyway. Got to work in the morning, so I don't know. I, I, you know, I know you guys, uh, I don't know how interrupted or uninterrupted your work schedule has been because of COVID, but I don't know about you. I have found that I am drinking far more than I ever have. Oh, yeah. That's got to be usual and customary, I would imagine, across the... Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it. Far for the course. Yeah. It is. I, the funny thing, though, that I find about that is all the news reports indicate that the alcohol industry is still taking a hit. Regardless, I mean, I've seen a couple of viral videos and things of, like guys jogging in the morning and looking at people's recycling. And it's just full of like all these liquor bottles and everything, <laughs> everybody's house. <laughs> uh, but it's, I guess they've still taken just such a big hit from the lack of liquor being sold at bars and, and restaurants. And, right. you know, you think about all the keg beers and, and things like that aren't going down. And I think overall there is uh, absolutely you know, uh, I mean, there's not as much money flow, uh, right. you know, in general. So, you know, that, that really breaks my heart. You know, I mean, I, I'm thankful that I at least have the finances to drink myself into a stupor. <laughs> because, well, you know, I mean, wouldn't that be horrifying right. I mean, to be without the economic means to, to, you know, provide the, the excess booze, <laughs> that's needed. That, that's absolutely needed to get through this fucking crisis. <laughs> right. Somebody, some, I can't think of who it was that we were talking to that was telling us there was like an aluminum crisis. Yeah. Because everybody's hoarding kegs. Mm-hmm. Oh, fuck. Nice. That's funny. Yeah. Well, you know, that would be me if I uh, had the room. <laughs> They're on to me. <laughs> damn it. Damn it. Oh, my God. I, gotta, I gotta hide these things. <laughs> oh, damn, this is good. So we've got a bourbon and Coke. We've got coffee. And I am uh, Bombay Sapphire. Mm, that's my go-to. That's good stuff. Really interesting. I have developed a real taste for the garlic stuffed olives. They're just freaking amazing. Mm -hmm. And I've just discovered jalapeno stuffed olives. So what I do now is I alternate them on the toothpick. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Insane. You know, because it's like, I've got to have it all, you know? Yeah. Otherwise you'd starve too. Yeah. (laughs) You know, they're about the the only greens I get. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm just I'm a purist when it comes to my martini though. I just go with the regular olives and the martini. I mean, I like I, I like all kinds of olives, but martini I just go with the pimento stuff and I like my martini dirty though. I like it with a lot of olives and a lot of olive juice. I put six of those suckers in there. 
So I figure there that makes go. it kind of, you know, that's, that's, that dirties it up significantly, I think. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Yep. And it's a meal. It is. Yep. It is. It's hearty. Hardy, mm-hmm. I tell you, that's what our ancestors did during the Great Depression. You know? Right. It's really, you know, but it was illegal. Yeah. <laughs> right. Made that bathtub gin taste better. That's, I tell you, God, I can only hope they cleaned that motherfucker before they put uh, in there. It's mm-hmm. just, uh, yeah. I, I bet they skimped on that every once in a while. It's something really sexy, though, about thinking about a bathtub full of gin. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. That's just I don't know. That's that's kind of erotic to me. I don't know yeah. why. <laughs> Certainly romantic until you sat in it, you know. And then, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then all hell freezes over. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, I see. I have a cut here and a cut here. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> that hemorrhoid is not doing well. Yeah. Well, this this, this conversation just evolved so fucking fast. Oh, no, quickly. Just yeah, it went down. It went down. So welcome to Undetermined. <laughs> yes. Uh tonight. Yeah. <laughs> nice. yeah. <laughs> Mr. Aaron Ball joining us uh, this evening. Yes. Yeah. Glad to have you, man. Same one. Glad to be here. It's, uh, yeah, it's a. You're one of those cats. It's it's hard to, to pin down exactly what to say about your career. I mean, you've been on screen in film since you were a toddler, two years old. Your first film being one of uh, my yeah, being one of my favorites was uh, the Legend of Boggy Creek, the uh, folk monster uh, Bigfoot film out of Arkansas, mm-hmm. and uh, up to today. I mean, how do you? define what you are really just with all your work in entertainment and all the work that you've done. I mean, uh, baritone, uh, uh, opera singer as well. Is that right? Is that pretty much your go-to, uh, you know, resume descriptor right now or. Well, it, I have to tell you, it, it was before COVID, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, COVID has, you know, I mean, this, this, this crisis really, it, it has trans. We, I don't think in our lifetimes we're ever going to fully understand all of the ways in which this crisis has transformed our, our culture, no, probably society, not. our probably. economy, our way of doing things, our ways of interacting, our relationships, how we develop them, how we nurture them, how we uh, how we grow them. It's everything. I mean, it's it top top to bottom, and one of those things that has been radically transformed um, just fairly immediately uh, is the performing arts. Right. I don't, what's my go-to? I would say what my go-to career, what my resume looks like now mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really uh, moving forward with uh, the company that I just started a few weeks ago. It feels like a few weeks ago. It was probably more like a month and a half ago, um, which is exactly in response to this need. In the performing arts, I, you know, I, I noticed, I, well, obviously, a lot of my singing colleagues are out of work. Uh, you know, the gig economy was shattered when it comes to yeah, uh, performing yeah. arts in terms of uh, even having viable venues is not uh, feasible anymore. So it's just a, it's just a real, uh, you know, that's that's something that has suffered, but but what's troubling to me and what has been troubling to me is that I've seen a general malaise across the performing arts 
community. Now I'm talking on behalf of obviously the singers are depressed, right. but I'm talking on behalf of the the performing arts organizations. Mm. There was a, effectively a wait and let's see right. philosophy that was unspoken but implemented, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of people that just stopped. Uh, administrating. So performing arts organizations whose seasons canceled with no long-term strategy for how to continue their season in a different way. So so what I felt and I still feel uh, as a huge responsibility, I just as a singer, as a, as a performing artist, I feel it's my responsibility to help further, to help first of all sustain the performing arts. I mean, the arts and humanities waits for no one, right? So I, I think it's an unfair argument for people for people in administration to say, we're going to wait, or we're just on hold, or we're on pause. These are, these are all unacceptable, I think, to me. I, I, we are such an advanced society technologically mm-hmm. right now. There are so many opportunities for performers to continue performing, for singers to continue singing, for performing arts organizations to continue producing. Um, And I think initially what I was encountering was a resistance to accept that. It was really strange. I mean, guys, it was like um, walking into a room and trying to convince people that what they've been doing all along is what they still need to continue doing. I mean, it was, it's bizarre, right? Yeah. But they, but so many stopped. And there was, you know, just this light switch. I've compared it to a light switch because I've seen it sitting in on so many different boards of directors meetings. Uh, you know, one of the things my company does, let me just throw it out there, is uh, we provide training and uh, workshop facilitation and strategic planning guidance and consultation for the performing arts uh, organizations that want to continue uh, delivering their, their productions, uh, learning how to do that remotely, learning how to do that virtually. Mm-hmm. From the top down, I mean, we provide full service. Uh, I just recently we came out of a training for a major choral ensemble uh, that had on their roster uh, eighty-five singers, uh, but wow. I actually trained sixty of them to get performance ready for remote performance. So it's my take, gentlemen, that the successful singer of tomorrow will also be a successful self-producer. They're going to have. To, again, the sooner singers learn to adopt the skill set needed for self-production, the better they're going to be, better off they're going to be. But but we train that. We bring singers up to speed on how to self-produce. Uh, we bring performing arts organizations up to speed on how they can continue providing quality service uh, through the performing arts. And possibly even further the art form of whatever art they're engaged in. Uh, I'm involved in opera. As you know, I sit on the board of a small opera company here in Los Angeles, and I've been fortunate enough to have, I mean, we've got a spectacular board of directors, and they have uh, really given me carte blanche to step in with so many of my ideas. And it's really helped bring them into the light. Uh, you know, I mean, all of a sudden, small companies are realizing that their donor base is now global, right. you know, that their audience mm-hmm. is expanded in such a way that facilitates their 
association with other national associations and other national organizations that help strengthen them. I mean, yeah. you know, they're, they're just... It, it, it's just they need guidance. I think people just need, you know, there's so much bullshit right now. It's hard. I mean, it's hard. People are all coming from this, uh, coming at this from a different place too, emotionally. And it's, you know, you just have to be very sensitive to that. But anyway, that's my resume now is heading up uh, the initiatives for that particular organization. I shit initiatives. I told myself I was going to cut that part <laughs> out of my vocabulary and I still fucking say it, right? So it's like, no, it's stupid. I have, I am like, my head is full because I, I, I'm a business guy from the nineties. So I, I, my head is full of all of this, these fucking business catchphrases that I just, Mm -hmm. I wish to God I could take a, like a, some kind of, I don't know, semantic vacuum cleaner and (laughs) suck out of my brain. All those inspirational posters. and talking. Right. But anyway, uh, (laughs) that's part of, uh, that's, that's a huge part of what I'm, what I'm doing. And that's kind of, that's really, that's not just a response to all of a sudden work drying up, right? Not being able to sing on the stage. Right. It's, uh, it's a responsibility. It's a responsibility. Well, it's to keep something from dying i would think too in, in a way <clears throat> if you're not reaching out to people and connecting with new people guess what the opera crowd's going to die out at some point if you're not connecting to new people of course and, and you know there's this idea too that uh you know we in the opera world especially have known that the model for opera production uh in america it's been needing to change drastically for a great many years. I mean, the donor base is getting older. There's always been this issue with, you know, the uh, how do you uh, uh, make opera relevant as if it needs to be made relevant? <clears throat> but but there is, uh, but you know, there there is some there is some point to that. I mean, I, I, you know, there, all of these questions about how do you sustain the the form, the art form. Well, guess what? We are in a position now to where we have to make those changes. So it's fantastic. I think the same thing is true, not just with uh, the performing arts. Same thing's true with our economy in general. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are finally at a place now where everything has to change. Uh, So what are we going to do about that? We're we're kind of looking at a scorched earth situation. We can build from scratch. We can build whatever the hell we want right now and make it good. You know, do it right this time. I think it's going to, we're going to see a huge change. Uh, my other business, um, God, it's, I'm insane. I am fucking insane. So I own two, I run two companies. Mm-hmm. I uh, run a product-based company and I run a service-based company. Command Performance, my shameless plug, mm-hmm. for my service-based company. Get it? Verformance. Virtual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. I thought it was pretty clever. I, I mean, I'm pretty <laughs> But that's the service-based company, and then the product-based company is a 33-year-old uh, business that uh, is a leader in the dance sport industry for uh, apparel, for dance sport apparel. Well, that kept me up at night, let me tell you, uh, around the clock for the first, well, all through March, for sure, because, uh, you know, nobody was dancing. 
Right. And then, yeah. you know, some of our biggest clients uh, are Olympic uh, athletes. They're ice dancers. They're, uh, you know, competitive uh, dancers. They're, they're all professional, uh, you know, within the dance sport industry. And and none of mm-hmm. all of that dried up just like performance. So I refocused that company to move exclusively into um, facial covering production. Mm. Uh, and that is really what we're doing. And for the first time in that company's history, we now have clients outside of the dance sport industry. It's been a real um, stretch for us. It's something that I wanted to do initially was expand our um, our demographic, you know, our, our customer demographic um, outside of its niche. So this was like a perfect opportunity for it. Again, it's the same kind of thing. Now we find ourselves in a situation where we're forced to do kind of the things we probably should have been doing all along, but never thought about because, you know, we weren't forced to do it. So, yeah. So now our our biggest customers for wholesale are retail pharmacies. Uh, And, uh, you know, I don't think it takes too much explaining as to why that is. They're they're one of the few Mm -hmm. essential business retail businesses that have consistently remained open and facial coverings, especially designer facial coverings. Mm -hmm. I mean, we uh, are an Emmy award winning design house. We did the costumes for Dancing with the Stars for the first uh, 12 seasons. And so the. Yeah. So to have a a facial covering on the market that is from the designers of Dancing with the Stars has a lot of appeal. And it has a lot of appeal in a pharmacy because that's where people are. And that's kind of where they're going to get that kind of product. So it's really interesting. Right. Set it right next to the uh, tabloids. (laughs) Do you know the one thing that I haven't worked and I need to be, get better on this. I, I, I actually, I need to get better with delegation. There needs to be like 10 of me. I've got a uh, uh, product placement, like where yeah. on the shelf uh, next to what and, and how I'm very fortunate that the pharmacies that I've been working with so far are very savvy with that. But really that kind of is something that I need to be in control of. And I'm not behind that yet. So, I mean, you know, there, there are a lot of things I'm behind the, uh, behind the curve on, but uh, I, I, for the most part, I like to be, I like to be there at the curve or, or ahead of it. <clears throat> and I, I've been trying my best, you know, like everybody else, we're sure. trying to keep our heads above. Water. So, so I guess those are the big takeaways. I mean, I am doing uh, uh, some audiobook narration, uh, I'm doing, uh, you know, some gig work, but it's, uh, but my bread and butter and my, my actual resume are the two companies right now. That's, that's where majority of my focus is, is being spent. Yeah. Well, and I think too, it's, it's, it's not only the business end of it, but just your experience in entertainment and everything, like I was mentioning before, I mean, you've been doing this your entire life. It's not like somebody necessarily who came into a career in entertainment when they were older or, you know, and then they can say, well, you know, I, I did other jobs and I can shift things. I mean, I mean, I know you've done other things, but yep. still it's like being such a big part of your life. I, I would imagine. Yeah. It's really fascinating to me. I I'm full of, so full of gratitude when I think about it guys, because, you know, I, I woke up in this in the middle of this, well, no, at the, the beginning of this crisis, actually, it wasn't the beginning of it. Uh, it was in January when I was doing some of my uh, second and third quarter um, uh, planning for mm-hmm. my uh, for Randall Designs, my product-based business. And uh, I was seeing what was happening in China and Wuhan, and uh, 
seeing then eventually what was happening in terms of not happening in terms of its containment. And of course, you look at the current administration and you're like, oh, we are fucked. We are seriously fucked. (laughs) Right. And so, I mean, just trying to build a long term strategy about, you know, based on a worst case scenario, it's depressing as hell. Um, But. I really feel like I was the one walking around with the cloud over my head when everybody was, I was going to rehearsals. I was in the middle of a production. Uh, yeah. that was, the, the run was cut short, of course, uh, <clears throat> because of the, the lockdown here in California. But, but I was going to rehearsals. I was like, God, there were th- people were asking me, what's wrong? What's going on? I said, guys, this, yeah. is, this is not yeah. looking good. And they're like, what are you talking about? Everything's yeah. great, <laughs> guy. What? I was like, <laughs> yeah, right. I don't want to bring it down. I don't want to burst your bubble, but we're all going to, we're all going to die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was kind of basically where I was, but you know, I've been very, very thankful that you're right. Um, really my entire body of uh, uh, of knowledge, my all of the skill sets that I bring to the table, my qualifications, my experience, all converged when this crisis happened, and were in need. Yeah, it was crazy to me that me, a trained opera singer with ten years of higher education to and training to support my my craft who also has a 17-year career in strategic planning and business development (laughs) and a background in audio engineering and video production, having run a successful video production company, all of these elements just like, bam, 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 who I am, which is pretty much defined by what I do, all came into lockstep with the needs, uh, the demand, the demands uh, stemming from this crisis. And it's just, it's, it's a marvel. It's a marvel to me because I, uh, and I I do thank God every morning that, uh, you know, that I am of use, that I'm able to make a difference uh, in these times because, uh, you know, and that I come to the table with exactly the qualifications and skill sets needed to, to, to be of use. It's, 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 it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. And, you know, it's, and like I say, it's a, your business resume is very impressive, but I just also want to get out there. Just anybody to check out your, your work in opera and singing. You're a great performer too, dude. That's sure. amazing oh, work. Um, Thank you. But you have to share a funny story though. I was like, uh, you know, Matt was telling me about some of your work. I was like, well, I'll look up some of his opera. And it's like, I looked into a video. I was like, oh, there he is in uh, Don Giovanni. I'm, I'm going to check that out. Clicked on that link. The first thing I think I think I see is you flying across the stage naked. I was like, "Yeah, there you go." Yeah, and there's a test. My my friend who was there in the audience. That was a beautiful hall, by the way. That's the Valley Performing Arts Center. Um, yeah, oh, yeah. It's a great, great theater. Um, and it was a big honking orchestra, and it was just a big space. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I made my entrance in that particular production bare ass fucking naked but you yeah. know what's you know what's crazy is that so with some of my friends afterwards you know they're giving me flowers and they're seeing me backstage and <laughs> and my, one of my really good buddies paul bonnell he's the director of uh the ghastly love of johnny x yes uh, yes you, just you, watched you, that last night yeah. yeah, it's a fun fun movie so paul my buddy paul he he looked at me he was smiling big old grin and he was nodding his head and he was like 
I just saw your ass. <laughs> it's a three hour freaking opera and all he can talk about is the first scene right yeah. <laughs> it's like the first scene like, you're ass. coming in after like uh seducing the commandant's daughter right two thousand people and i just saw your ass what are you right. <laughs> well that was my introduction i stuck around for the singing though so there you Andre, go that's how i met aaron too this was at work <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> uh, statute of limitations, I'm sure. Sorry, it was an olive. It went down the wrong way. Uh, yeah. How did you meet me? Yeah. Well, we actually work together at a place that does not sound anything like any of these uh, positions that you've described. Exactly. But you trained me for a shitty call center job many years ago. Yep. And I am so glad neither one of us is there anymore. <laughs> you know, I have to tell you that I am grateful for my time and experience with um, that company because it really did. I mean, I was able to move as far as I could. I was able to to, to advance as far as I could. Mm -hmm. And I am grateful for that opportunity. I mean, you know, I started as a data entry associate. Like I was punching a keyboard for claims processing. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was doing that uh, when I went, I was like making minimum wage. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I I landed that job in 91 or something like that. And um, yeah. And I was able to move myself up to a, a, you know, to a a director level. So I was very, very happy uh, with the experience that I got there. But, you know, there comes a time where I think people outgrow their uh, environment. Right. And, you know, it was just a, a situation where I had gone as far as I knew I was going to be able to go. And also when you're teaching people how to run a company, I, I think it, for me, I was haunted. And I think this is probably one of the major contributing factors for my resignation was that I, I kept asking myself every day, why am I not doing this for myself? Right. You know, I'm, I've, I'm teaching a whole company how to how to operate at a, at a high level i know how to do this why am i not doing it hmm. so uh, i think that was the launching off for me well i'm glad that was how it was for you for me it was more and i did i managed to move up you know to a degree in the company not to a directorship but i, I definitely got out of the call center uh, and, you know, I kind of ended up in a position where I got to go to a lot of meetings that were a little right. bit above my pay grade. Right. And that was kind of where it was for me, like seeing kind of this underbelly that I didn't really like seeing. Yeah, yeah. I'd say direct. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't director. I, I, it was like a, a senior, senior position. Right. But I, I just saw I, I, there was another side that was going on with the real positions of power and a lot of it gave me a really kind of a sick feeling Sure, uh, when I would hear what they were saying and just not some values that I agreed with. Right. Yeah. It all comes down to that, right? How we want to um, live. I think I, I can speak for myself. I want to live. I know I always want to live fully within, you know, the, the guidelines of uh, the value set that I have adopted. And, you know, I also have to be open-minded enough to realize and not rigid and, and, you know, realizing that that value set can be amorphous sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I need to be, I need to be able to give 
and, uh, you know, allow for some wiggle room. Right. But for the most part, I think I come to the table with a, a value set that I, you know, if, for example, I mean, there's some things that are just boundary crossing issues. Right. And, and a lot of those are political. Right. You know, so in a, in a company, you, you know, that's a place where that kind of bullshit shines. It's brightest. Is this the same place, Matthew, you were telling me that there was kind of a, a poltergeisty thing going on? Yes. So what was going on? They were like digging up a graveyard across the, uh, and this has nothing to do with your business, of course. It was like the city or whatever. So yeah, the place we were working, they had just been bought out by like an architectural company or something like that. Uh-huh. And they were going to redesign the whole building. So they started work on what they were doing before we moved out and they dug up the parking lot outside the building. Okay. And they found like an old, like French, when this was like French territory. Yeah. Yeah. Cemetery. I think it was a Catholic cemetery that they dug up. It, it was like a Jesuit. Uh, it was like a Jesuit uh, uh-huh. cemetery, I think, where there used to be a Jesuit school there on the grounds. Can we say where that is on the air? Like the the designation, like the area in the city? or It's downtown Kansas City area, you know. Do you want to talk about the building? The building's quite historical, so I didn't know if you wanted to talk yeah. about the building. No, yeah, go ahead. I, I don't think that's, yeah, that's yeah, not so untoward. This is, I don't the, this is in the, the the quality, what's called the Quality Hill District in Kansas City. And okay. The building's the old Hereford Building. Mm-hmm. They call it the old Hereford Building, or they don't call it the old Hereford Building. That's my, they, it's the Hereford, 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 Hereford uh-huh. Building um, after the cattle because is it was the home of the the nation's very first data processing services and company the very first data processing ever mm-hmm. happened in this building and it was it was designed to catalog uh the genealogy of all of the different um breeds of cattle for the uh you know, mm-hmm. for the you know because we're a cow town you know yeah, yeah, you know, cow towns. Yep. So Huge. consequently, and it's hang, it's it's over the West Bottoms, is where which is where the stockyards exactly, were exactly right, mm-hmm. which is kind of creepy in itself. So the but mm-hmm. the the idea, um, you know, of this being it, having such an integral uh, uh, function within American economy, American food economy, uh, mm-hmm. and technology at the time, the building when it was. Uh, when it when it was opened for this data processing business, the data processing firm was inaugurated by President Eisenhower himself, mm. like in 1953. Mm-hmm. I think it was 53, wasn't it, Matt? It was up right up right. Uh, Ask me the year. I don't know. And uh, so it was inaugurated by President Eisenhower. The building opens, breaks you know, after it's broken ground. Fantastic architecture for the time, and. They erect this uh, pillar mm-hmm. that has this gigantic bull sitting on top of it that kind of like overlooks oh, yeah. the skyline. Yeah. Yeah. So I've yeah, seen imagery of that. Yeah. 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 So that's the building where Matt and I worked. Right. And the building that huh. he's talking about when he's saying they excavated the the parking lot. So there's a lot of history that goes behind this. But then mm-hmm. going, uh, you know, of course, back into the 19th century. Um, as well. So, Matt, please continue. <laughs> so, the bull was named Sirloin. <laughs> if I remember correctly. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
You probably got to chuckle out of that every day, knowing your pun. Yeah, your pun obsession. No, he's he's serious though. That that's not a joke. (laughs) That was seriously (laughs) the thing. And there was like a backup, and I can't remember what the backup, but they had like a one in storage too. Yeah, there was like one in storage. Yeah. What was its name? I can't remember what its name. It was something equally as as witty Uh, as that. I can't remember. But now it's not there anymore. I mean, what what did they do? I, they moved it over to like the FBI building or something. Huh. Um, Crazy. Yeah. They, they moved it. Uh, to Casey, Casey Parks and Rec. Uh, let's see. It's at 13th and Summit. Ah, uh, uh, that sounds about right. There. Right on 13th. Yeah. Uh-huh. It was yeah. because it's right there at uh, I-35 and. Uh, yeah. It's over, over it's looking. The, Resides in Mulkey Square, it says. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so there were um accidents associated you know, yeah. a string of Yeah. Yeah, so they were digging up bodies, apparently to they, yeah, they they dug up and they had like a whole, you know, team that came out to investigate it. But when they were digging up the bodies, and I remember this story circulating around was um right before they found the first body, before that happened. <laughs> Like nine one one was getting calls from within the building, and it, it was that when they would answer, nobody would respond. It was just a, a blank call, but they kept calling. <sighs> so after so many times of doing that, you know, the police come out to investigate what's going on. Is something you know? Is they got to see if someone is at risk of harm or something? And they get there and they look up the phone number, and the phone number, like the extension, it's from that building, but it's not assigned to anybody mm. it's just like this empty extension <laughs> weird so that was kind of creepy right mm-hmm. before they discover you know bodies yeah 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 i remember that. i remember that morning and i had not i had forgotten completely about it until you mentioned it to me matt that i mean that was freaking like it was like a scene out of fucking poltergeist it was weird <laughs> yeah yeah you move the gravestones, but you didn't move. Yeah, uh, <laughs> basically, <laughs> you didn't move the money, did you? Yeah, <laughs> but it was. We had literally been parking over a cemetery for years. Yeah, I'm sure that happens a lot more than we think it right. does in America. It, well, just you know, running out of space and things like that. There's this uh, great documentary I was just watching. I think it was on Netflix or something. Uh, it's called Facing East. Uh, it's great. I think it's about a Louisville, Kentucky, like a uh, cemetery, uh, historical cemetery, where they were basically, you know, reburying plots, and people started figuring out around the seventies or eighties. It's like, according to your records of how many people you have buried there, you have way more than is allotted for like just the square footage of this area. You know, how is this possible? Oh, you know, we keep just finding room, and you know, <laughs> that's, a, that's a red flag. <laughs> right. And they're finding like, you know, parts of bone and skull and stuff as they're like excavating different areas for like new burials. And the place is just treated just horribly. And it was just this uh, for-profit sort of situation where they didn't care about any of the dignity of the burial or, or any. Right. Or, oh my God. It's, it's, it's grueling to watch. It's, it really is, but uh, still interesting. Yeah. I call it facing East is the name of the film. 
Cool. Uh, but yeah, we had people like about the time this was going on too. There was like it, something that was happening. Stuff would happen in the building. Mm-hmm. I can't remember all the things that would happen, but I remember like one person coming in to this door that like just it was a metal door, but nobody had ever had any problem with this door before. And all of a sudden it is just like whacking people. And like one girl, I think was a girl. I can't remember. Got sent to the ER because they gashed their head open. Yeah, wasn't that wasn't um, that one of the administ the up front the desk uh, gals? Maybe she was like one of the yeah she was one of the younger because you remember there was what was her name she she was there for years from DST she was older she was like the the head receptionist there at the old mm-hmm. you remember who I'm talking about ah uh, I can't remember. Um, she hired a, you know, like a 19, 18, 19 year old, some, some little thing uh, mm-hmm. that was there. And uh, I think that was who it was. Mm. Yeah. Uh, she was a l- little wisp of a thing. Crazy. Yeah. That makes it really doubly terrifying. Right. So you've got this yeah. tiny little body and this gigantic metal door it's like a freight door right it was like a freight one of those yeah uh-huh. well it was like a heavy yeah it was a pretty heavy door mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's 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 fucked up yeah it is we survived that we survived that matt you and I yeah survived. we did we got We're through survivors. there yeah. Yeah. absolutely sirloin and his ghost sirloin's ghost yeah man speaking of other things you survived man I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this. Okay, so Aaron, you grew up in. It came from Texarkana, right? I yeah, I was born in Texarkana, Texas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, just for listeners who aren't familiar, um, you've got a connection to the Phantom Killer, the Moonlight Murders that occurred yeah. there. I do. Um, I do. Yeah, rich, you've got to tell people about this. Yeah, right. Got to talk yeah, about this. Absolutely. So, well, you know, we, we were talking about the the Legend of Boggy Creek. We didn't really talk mm-hmm. about. I guess it's legacy. I mean, you know, I, 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 I've got to be very, I've got to cherry pick, you know, what I can talk about here because <laughs> well, there's so much. There's I know so why. Much. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is so much. I've heard some of these stories on uh, the internet. There's a lot of information about it. As a matter of right. fact, I don't know if you're familiar with Steve Bissett, Stephen Bissett. He's a fantastic uh, graphic artist. He uh, was the creator of Swamp Thing for DC Comics. And I, yes. That, of course, was made into a John Carpenter film with, uh, yeah, you know, in the, I remember that. In the 80s, right? Well, Steve uh, has written um, the authoritative book on the legend of Boggy Creek, on the film, on the making of the film, mm-hmm. on the legacy of the film. And he's, he's done it so craftily. I mean, he, it's, it's a labor of love for him because he loves the, the project and he loves the book, but he's included some fantastic essays from, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I, I don't think it's, uh, I think it's scheduled for a, a next year release 2021, but my piece, uh, which you've read is, um, going to be the introduction for that book and oh, it's great it's, it's good writing right there's a lot thank you i appreciate it there's a lot of um so i've got to be very i've got to just pick and choose what i want to talk about it i guess the big takeaways are that the legend of boggy creek was charles b pierce's very first film uh mm-hmm. he worked in conjunction with my father uh john ball who was the art director and production designer for mm-hmm. the film they worked 
together in a small little office, uh, an advertising office, commercial art, uh, which was, you know, it was Charlie's office. And my father was actually Charlie was my father's first employer. And my father was uh, Charlie's first director of port ever. Mm -hmm. I mean, so there were these these young adults who were, um, you know, had heard about this legend of this crazy hairy beast roaming the swamps of <laughs> southwestern Arkansas in their area because because it had been reported on uh, in you know going back to the turn of the century, uh-huh. right? And uh, you know, and we're talking about Falk, Arkansas, where this is all centered, and Falk has always maintained a population of about two to three hundred people. So I mean, it, it's tiny little place, right? And uh, Charlie was able to procure investment funds through his biggest client at the time, uh, Buddy Ludwell, uh, who had a trucking company. And Charlie had produced this fantastic, popular television commercial for uh, the Ludwells. And, you know, he mm-hmm. wanted to believe in him. And uh-huh. uh, so he and my father really kind of dreamed up this idea for this movie while working in that little office and took $160,000 of the mm-hmm. investment money and set out to make a movie. Neither one of them knew a thing about making a movie. That's, uh, wow. That's yeah. so crazy ambitious. And- so ridiculously ambitious. I mean, Charlie Ooh. did all of his DP work. So Charlie learned, I mean, he, he, Charlie sat down with Flo, his wife, they would sit down. He was reading manuals on how to operate this 30, the, the Panavision 35 millimeter <laughs> uh, cameras and how to, and principles of photography. He was already a, a good photographer, but he was, you know, having to learn principles of cinematography uh-huh. and he taught himself and did all of the, and you know, as you know, having seen the movie, I guess today, right. The restoration, did you yeah, see I that? The mm-hmm. yeah, it's, yeah. it's fucking gorgeous. Right. Oh, yeah, the, right. Nature shots and the swamp shots. They're just beautiful, beautiful work. And, uh, you know, and it, it was just, it was really great to be able to, to do that. So anyway, the legacy behind that film mm-hmm. is that it still remains, I believe the top grossing documentary, if you were to put it in a documentary mm-hmm. category, which it doesn't really belong because it was genre, right. it was genre defying, right? So he, he, it was basically a new genre, the, the docu uh, drama, mm-hmm. right? Right. This is what you could call it. I mean, the the Blair Witch Team, you know, uh, credited Boggy Creek as their principal right. inspiration because right. it, mm-hmm. it really mm-hmm. does um, it created that genre for the first time, but in the genre of documentary it still remains the highest grossing film of all time mm-hmm. um wow it was the highest uh the 10th highest grossing film of all in the year of its release in 72 so that that is a very formidable list i mean that's a list that includes the godfather cabaret uh mm-hmm. I think uh McCabe and, McCabe and mrs miller might have been that year it's it's sure. a it was a big year and um, so it has a rich legacy there. And culturally, of course, it is single-handedly uh, credited as having been the single biggest catalyst for launching the Bigfoot movement in oh, the yeah. 70s. Yeah, it's, uh-huh. it's canon, absolutely. Which yeah. uh, really drove. So let's fast forward a bit. Mm-hmm. Charlie then makes, uh, uh, makes two subsequent films. Uh, the bootleggers and uh, the winds of autumn mm-hmm. before he, 
think Winterhawk may have come also before that. It might have been three uh, before he moves to another uh, horror-based film. Mm-hmm. Uh, also having to do with a legend that uh, existed at the t- you know going back to the the 40s uh, in Texarkana, my hometown of Texarkana, mm-hmm. and that was the legend of the Phantom Killer. And it's not so much legend this uh, particular piece. It's actually based on an actual true story. And yeah, cold case. there is now um, evidence to support, you know, there are a lot, there are several people in Texarkana politics who absolutely for sure know who the phantom killer actually is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, and I've been sworn to secrecy. I also know who the phantom killer was. Wow. Um, but I, can't i would certainly never reveal that um he had a he's deceased now of course but he Mm -hmm. uh, yeah it might affect other people yeah his reign of terror was um isolated to the 40s to the um you know to the wartime era so uh 42 through around the time the war ended uh for us uh maybe a year later 45 or 46 and he uh you know, it was uh, it, it was a classic case of a serial killer that absolutely caused extreme panic within uh, the local community in which these killings happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and that film, the film that was made, was the town that dreaded sundown, and uh, yes. has one of the one of the classic uh, in all of horror films, one of the classic murder scenes. Mm-hmm. And that was actually uh, a scene my father dreamt up mm. involving a trombone. I won't go into yeah. the detail. <laughs> yes, <laughs> my favorite scene in the movie. Uh, thank you, thank you. Yes, I, 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 I have those genes. That comes from my uh, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, accredited by some even as like one of the first slasher films. Yeah, yeah. I think it actually probably did set i mean i don't know i mean psycho maybe if you look at that house on the left came out i think around that same time yeah but it's certainly in that category it's uh you know i mean i was yeah. well familiar with the film i've seen it you know a few times before i even mm-hmm. heard your name from matt but I mean, as a matter of fact matt was mentioning you uh just a few months ago and he was like you know i know that I know the guy who's like deeply involved in that film is like really <laughs> but yeah Pretty deeply, pretty deeply involved. I mean, I, you know, because I, I, even though Boggy Creek, you know, I uh, have so many stories about, about that. Those are really my first memories, but the, the, uh, you know, from Boggy Creek, really Charlie's movies, my father worked for Charlie for all through the seventies. So um, I was, uh, I got to be part of that movie making machine. Uh, for the first 10 years of my life. Mm-hmm. So really my first decade of existence uh, was uh, spent on location. Right. And I got to learn all of the ins and outs. I mean, I, I hang with, uh, you know, some really cool people. I mean, uh, Ben Johnson, Academy Award winning uh, actor, Ben Johnson taught me how to play pool, for example. Wow. Um, yeah. Natalie Wood's sister, Lana Wood, who starred in Grey Eagle, taught me how to play backgammon. Hmm. Um, I was very good friends uh, as a child. I, I really l- fell in love with M- Michael Parks. He became a second dad to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, his son, Jim, you would know Michael Parks. He was from uh, the television show was popular at the time. Then came Bronson. And then he, uh, mm-hmm. 
I think modern day audiences would know him through uh, his connection with Tarantino. Absolutely. Because Tarantino, of course, brought him back into the limelight as the sheriff in all of his films. He had a recurring character. Son of mine. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a great, and he did a great job with it. Yeah. And his son, Jim, was his deputy. And uh, mm-hmm. Jim, uh, they were inseparable. I mean, they he took Jim everywhere with him. Uh, it was like, you know, like I take my little dog with me everywhere, right? He took his son everywhere. That's awesome. And so, yeah, so Jim and I are uh, the same age. And uh, so we we buddied up and I just ended up kind of camping out with Michael and, and Jim. And uh, of course, that film, The Evictors, uh, featured Jessica Harper. This was the last film I was involved with. I was actually in every single shot in that film. Uh, funny story, you know, I mean, you'll never see me. The only part you see of me is uh, a handwritten note that scrawled supposedly from the the killer uh, to the 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 to the owners uh, or the renters of the house they want them to move from the evictors, right? Whoever decided to make mm. a horror story around someone who wanted to evict someone. I mean, it's, it's, now's the time. But there's <laughs> so um, I I was able to write the scrawled. Uh, hand note that said, I want you to move. (laughs) That's awesome. My handwriting was atrocious. Oh my God. (laughs) So they were like, yep, serial killer. (laughs) So that like leave you with a complex growing up. Like I've got to have good handwriting. I can't. It's never, I've never had good handwriting. It's horrible. I am either. (laughs) My parents used to tell me, like, you'll make a great doctor. And I always took that as a compliment, you know? Oh my God. Well, yeah, that's interesting because my signature people now say, wow, that's a great signature. But uh, I remember yeah. I being very ashamed of it because people would say, oh my God, what is that? Or like, like, kind of Rorschach? what are you, what is that? <laughs> so I think that changed probably when, I don't know, when I got older and started hanging around adults, but right. so yeah, that starred Jessica Harper and I think just a funny bookend. Uh, to my career in film is that um, one of my favorite movies ever uh, is Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise. Yes. Yes. And uh-huh. I, um, I, I love that movie from top to bottom. Yeah. And the um, great joy for me, one of the great joys of being in the ghastly love of Johnny X, Uh, which had its premiere in 2012 Mm -hmm. was that, uh, that my scenes were with Paul Williams. Paul Williams. Yes. And, (laughs) you know, he was just, you know, such an incredible guy uh, to work with. And I, I I just, I really, I'm really happy that I had that experience and that I have him, that I can, I count him as a friend and he's just a stellar, stellar, uh, top notch individual. But, the person who was originally slotted to play Queen Betty in the Ghastly Love of Johnny X was Jessica Harper. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So the crazy thing about that, whenever I watch Phantom of the Paradise, it's like, you know what? I've been in a movie with both of the leads in Phantom of the in my favorite movie. Who gets that opportunity? Yeah. You know? Right. I mean, granted, you know, one was 1979 and the other was 2012, but. Mm. Neither here nor there. Still, it counts. Yeah. yeah, I've spoken too much. I think I need guidance from the hosts. No, I, we're wanting to get some of these stories, and I, I have like very fond memories of. We got close enough when we were working together that we'd hang out occasionally, and you would have these awesome movie nights 
at your house that oh, I, I felt really you came fortunate to one to of those. invited to. I came to a couple, I think. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I didn't remember you coming. That's great. Was that um uh at the house on uh uh up in Briarcliff? Yeah, there was that yeah. one. I think there was two houses that I actually went to. Well, yeah. but you'd project it on the side of the house. And uh-huh, yeah, the yeah, I remember yeah, yeah. breaking out a sword in Champagne yes, one sure, night. Yeah. Having... Well, one of those movies may have been The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Yeah, it was. And I we watched that, and, and uh-huh. I think a couple of times we watched that one. Probably, yeah. I have a, I have a great 16-millimeter print of, of that film, a reduction print from the 35 and it's um and i love that film because it's uh it's a technicolor print mm-hmm. so you know it's got eye popping color and it projects really well it's beautiful it's an anamorphic uh it's in scope yeah and so it projects a really nice big uh image uh love that love that fucking film I love screening it yeah uh, i've screened it so many times audience oh that was so much fun yeah i know i went to at least a couple of those and i, I had a blast every time i love the near yeah i love the narration in that film I mean, like i say i've always loved that film kind of independently of of knowing you or, or you know matt just bringing you up that's why it was so interesting to me because i've that's been one of my cult favorites it's great did you see the remake no i didn't i i considered writing it but i was like oh no i'd rather you know. Yeah. How is it? Yeah, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it either. I, mm. you know. <laughs> well, that's why I'm asking because I haven't seen. It. Yeah. You know. I yeah. Never, no. No, I was interested too. I, you know, mainly just see if they do anything with a, a trombone tribute. <laughs> did they? Did they? Do you know if they? Did? I don't. I don't have no idea. Okay. Well, that'll be a project. That'll be a project. Maybe I'll watch it Halloween. Yeah. I think I read that it wasn't actually a remake. That it was kind of like a. Um, I don't know, like uh, uh, so many years later, kind of thing that it was kind oh, of sequel esque. Yeah. But oh, okay, not really. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> but, but Steve, Steve Lyons uh, was uh, Flo. So Charlie's wife, Flo, had a brother, has a brother. Well, she's deceased now, but um, her brother's still alive, Steve, mm-hmm. and. Steve was the teenager in the town that dreaded sundown. He was also the teenager in the legend of Boggy Creek. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he was typecast forever as the teenager, even beyond his teenage years. And so in um, the town that dreaded sundown, there's that wonderful scene in lover's lane where he mm-hmm. is yep. um, yeah. one of the first uh, murders. Right. Really? Yeah. That's the big, yeah, radio. that's where you're like, Oh shit. <laughs> radio lap scene yeah. or, so you're going to see him as he's pulled out of the car by the phantom killer in that scene, that take, um, when he's being pulled out of the car, he actually broke his arm. Oh, ouch. Yeah. Nice. So during that, I mean, he was in and kept on freaking going. So what you, what you're seeing there is like some serious hardcore shit. Yeah. Um, wow. So it's a snuff film. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like one bit. of those. Yeah, it's so fun, especially when somebody's receptive to it. You know, if somebody's yeah. like, "Oh yeah, whatever," you know, if they're you know act turned off by the fact that they don't know, but if somebody's receptive to doing that, I love introducing people to films. It's, like it's fantastic, yeah. mm-hmm. and um, you know, and so we we had about thirty of them on the um, on the on the watch list, and you know, of course, you know, my biggest priority um, was to hit up the shared universe, of course, because. Um, 
those films always I remember being my favorite mm-hmm. as a kid. Uh-huh. You know, Frankenstein meets Wolfman and right. House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. Mm-hmm. Right up. These, these fantastic uh, movies where, you know, all the monsters converge right. uh, and uh, fight each other and all that sort of thing. It's a lot right. of fun. Um, but there were some movies in that series uh, that I do not recall seeing and probably for good reason. Yeah. I mean, right. the mummy franchise. Mm-hmm. Oh, ouch. Yeah. yeah. Ouch. Yeah. It's, you find that. yeah. <laughs> it's funny that you're, I've, I've noticed too, that there's a lot of like jokes alluding to that going into like modern horror films or like even like kids cartoons. It's like, what does a mummy actually do to you? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but they're scary. <laughs> but they're scary for some they're reason. They're really scary. They're dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they're scary. But, do they uh, eat yeah. you? Do they kill you? No, I don't think so. But I, yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's been a lot of it's been a lot of fun, specifically also because uh, you know I mean I'm, uh, we you know we're we're using our VR headsets to to watch these uh, together. Oh, nice. Yeah, mm-hmm. in big screen because you know big screens just fantastic. It's opened up a whole new world for uh, mm. being able to see these movies right. as they were originally intended to be seen, which is on, uh, you know, big screens. And it's just, it's been a lot of fun for me seeing some of these films for the first time on a big screen. Uh, uh, it's been a, a real, a real, real kick. Um, yeah. But I already have for the next two years. This is how freaking you know, ridiculous. I am. Uh, right. I have planned the next out. two Halloweens. Yeah. The next two Octobers mm. uh, planned out in terms of our watching. Uh, huh. Yeah. So next year will be um, as many of the hammer horror films oh, yes. as we can sure. squeeze yeah. in. And then uh, the year after that is going to be exclusively foreign language. So we'll uh, work mostly, nice. you know, I mean, I mean, a lot of the, the, classics uh-huh. but um definitely going to uh, use um, argento as the centerpiece nice. for, yeah. for our so, foreign language film watching yep yeah we need to find a jumping back in point <laughs> <laughs> i think oh, I, I think we're leaving to it oh uh, really yeah um, well we talked we're, about uh well i mean uh ghastly love we were, we were talking about that a little bit yeah, um, we talked about that a little bit. So that's uh, yeah, one so thing you, you know, got to mention, though, the cinematic history of it that we were talking about last night. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that it was the last film uh, yeah. shot on Plus X. Or yeah, black shot and on white. Plus X. Yeah, funny story about that. I mean, mm-hmm. well, this is why the, uh, Johnny X is, um, you know, I mean, we got a huge write-up in um, American Cinematographer. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we were actually featured on uh as the feature story for uh cbs uh sunday morning or whatever it is with bill geist mm-hmm. um on oscar sunday um, oh, cool. yeah in 2012 because of uh just you know the noteworthy the academic noteworthy and, and aesthetic noteworthy mm-hmm. uh, aspect of the fact that you know plus x was discontinued the year yeah. go, right before the film went into production. Uh, the film was discontinued. Now, the, 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 there's a storied. The film has a, just a storied history in terms mm-hmm. of its production. I mean, production work actually started in 2005, uh, 2006, mm-hmm. um, and of course, completion. I was brought on initially as um, an executive producer uh, because I was 
this was would have been back in 2007 mm-hmm. because before it went into major production because uh, I had procured the, the person who was going to bring in completion financing for the film. Ah, nice. um, ah. He was a colleague, you know, a gentleman with whom I was uh, not only friends, but had done some business with. It was a medical doctor who <laughs> <laughs> got to the point where he even wrote a letter of intent uh, wow. for providing uh, completion funds for the, the film. And um, then he was caught lying to a grand jury oh no uh because uh, uh the pharmaceutical company he was working for at the time he had falsified documents to fast track a drug to get approval through oh, the fda no. and lied about it to a grand jury when he was called <laughs> as a witness. Ooh, that, that's not good for your career. And what we discovered was that he, you know, was looking for a way to to shelter a lot of his cash. Mm-hmm. And so hold on for just a second. My dog is losing his shit. <laughs> that's all right. No, Arthur, we've had it. What's up? Come here. Come into the studio. Come into the studio with Papa. Come on. Come in here. I'll let you in here. Come on. Gives you food and comfort and drink. <laughs> okay, hi guys, I'm back. Hi. Oh, uh, this I've got my boy with me, Arthur. Uh-huh. Right on, Arthur Edwin. Okay, that's good. but anyway, yeah. Uh, as we were uh, saying, I don't. Yeah, know that that's all very uh, Ed Wood. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh yeah. So so yeah. So he goes off to prison. And uh, I lose my, uh, you know, my, my investor. And um, yeah, so I, that's, that's, I will never, ever be a a film producer in this town (laughs) (laughs) because of that track record. But um, (laughs) did you guys have to scramble to find all the film? Yeah, Yeah, we did. Yeah, Yeah, we did. Because the, um, because it had, because the stock had been discontinued, the biggest Mm -hmm. problem was that uh, it had been hoarded. And Ooh. the the stock that had eventually been hoarded was hoarded by the production team of a small film that actually swept the award season uh, that year. Uh, the artist, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. remember mm-hmm. that? That was a silent mm-hmm. film, right? Um, and they. They're, they're, they had hoarded the stock because they wanted to sh- – because that is the classic cinema uh-huh. black and white stock, right? That's what right. Yeah. all classic black and white films have been shot on, including contemporary ones. I mean, you know, the, the Raging Bull. You mentioned Schindler's List. Schindler's Man- List yeah. We think about Manhattan. We think about all of the classic uh, contemporary films. And then also, of course, you know, so the, the classic classic films from the Golden Age. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these are – you know, have a rich history with Plus X. So the production team for the artist – gave up after hoarding a lot of the stock. They gave up on the idea of shooting on the stock because they realized that they wouldn't have enough footage. Mm -hmm. Uh, They wouldn't have enough of the stock to shoot on. So they actually shot the artist in color and um, digitized it. Uh, to black and white they you know, uh, and it's very disappointing to me when i see that film it's otherwise it's a beautiful film and yeah. i i highly recommend it but i see the artifacts um the digital right. artif- artifacts of the transcoding and the um color desaturation you know you mm-hmm. can tell that it wasn't shot 
in black and white. You can tell that it was the lighting wasn't designed with black and white in mind. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, the the costume, the color palette, which should be very specific for black and white films. I, I've talked to people about this, and they're like, "Why is there a color palette if it's being shot in black and white?" I, there I has think to a be. lot of them. I think a lot of them would understand if they watch Johnny X, especially a film that is designed for black and white shots. And mm-hmm. you can tell that in the way that every shot is framed, where the costuming is, the, the, even the classic cars they pick. Um, oh yeah. It, Francisco know, Bucarelli. Yeah. The fantastic cinematographer, DP Francisco Bucarelli was the, um, he's just, he's spectacular. His, his work in black and white is unparalleled. It's just, it's, it's really, really well shot and yeah. uh, well thought of. And they used yeah. the same, uh, tried to go back. I mean, historically accurately produce, reproduce the um, color makeup for Frankenstein's monster for creating that in that film. Uh, So if you were to, I mean, I, I was there, in the dressing room with them. I, I, I directed and shot all of the behind the scenes. So, um, and the EPK work for the film. So I had a little production team that was working in tandem with the major production team. So I had my sound person, I had my boom operator, I had all of the, my little production crew. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, as Mr. Projector, my, alter ego i was uh going through and interviewing the cat various cast members and and you didn't get to see this because i think you rented it but um right. if you get the uh, uh the the dvd hasn't been released on blu-ray yet but if you get the dvd uh version of it all of the behind the scenes all of the extras all of the special features mm-hmm. are are mine i mean i i produced, directed, wrote, and starred in all of those and it was my idea to make them narrative uh, uh, to give the special features like another dimension of the film. Right. Um, because I felt like it deserved that, you know, that extra something that hadn't been done before, mm. um, where you get a little something truly extra by watching the special features because you learn a little bit more about the movie from the character that's in the movie. Right. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. it becomes then an extension of the film and not just a commentary on the film. And, mm. uh, but yeah, yeah, so Creed Bratton's makeup was actually uh, pretty hardcore, authentically the same type of makeup that uh, in terms of color uh-huh. that, uh, that Frankenstein's monster was oh, because cool. and the yeah. reason why we see Frankenstein's monster green the reason why we see him green in color ads or in marketing promos is because green translates in black and white it's the closest color we can get to the look of dead flesh right Mm. yeah there's a a a thing too just like with the manufacturer of guitars and instruments they call tv yellow um Mm -hmm. where you see all these old classic like 50s and 60s guitars that had this kind of you know pukish yellow color and people thought it was just oh that must have been a popular color at the time it's like no it's because when it showed up the best um in contrast on black and white film um and that's why they created those guitars that way and it's like that's exactly right that's exactly right so i mean uh, perspective it's really kind of cool so anyway so the artist was hoarding this footage Mm -hmm. uh the stock uh they let it go and so consequently when they let go of their uh treasure trove uh that they couldn't use Uh and um because of the uh the extra footage there Mm -hmm. uh, 
And because of the production of the artist was exclusively in France, uh, the Johnny X team was able to to salvage uh, the last remaining scraps enough to finish the film uh, in Paris. Uh, so that's that's where the where they were, where the where the re- the, the remainder of the plus X was. Wow. Um, but yeah, it's it's historic for that reason. It's also groundbreaking in and notorious in that mm-hmm. it, ha- it takes the record as being the lowest grossing film of 2012. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. It's an so honor. It, it, uh, yeah. being, no, I mean, if you look at the list, the official list, yeah. I think there, there's <laughs> the one that comes in above that is a movie called Paycheck, I think. It was uh, with, it was, I got a stellar cast. It was like a, Bruce Willis or something. I can't remember who was, who was in that movie, but um, I didn't see it. But uh, yeah, the lowest course. The reason why that is, there's a, here's a Kansas uh, connection for you. Mm. So um, it did really well uh, on, the, on the festival circuit. Mm-hmm. Um, people ate it up. I mean, I, it, was, it was a hot film that summer mm-hmm. in 2012. And I actually followed it around and did Q&A panels and got to oh, see fun. some really fun theaters across the country um, mm-hmm. in helping to represent the movie. And it was just, uh, it was a wonderful ride and audiences. It was picking up awards, right? Awards mm-hmm. for its killer soundtrack. Ego Plum is uh, man. He's, he's just like out there and yeah. he is so freaking talented. I fucking love him. I mean, I love him as a, as a human mm-hmm. being, but I mm-hmm. also uh, love his, his body of work. His work. Yeah. Um, he, uh, you know, is picking up awards for, for really everything. Uh, and, uh, you know, so came time to, you know, we were still looking for a distributor, couldn't find anybody who wanted to touch it because it was in black and white. That was the big holdup. Mm. Um, nobody wanted to touch a black and white film. Uh, so, uh, that was the big holdup. So we get to one of the final festivals we played. And it was the Kansas International Film Festival. And that was being that whole festival uh, that year, this would have been 2012, was at the um, the Glen Arts, Glendale, Glen Arts Theater. That was off uh, like 90. Right, 95th and Metcalf. But you remember yeah. it wasn't, but they had moved. By then, because you know the the sign, right? The the sign was historic. There was this big yeah. old drama about when the theater shut down. What are you going to do with the sign? So they moved the sign to another theater, like across the way, um, that was kind of in a strip mall. Yeah, and they called it the New Glen Arts or whatever it was called. Well, anyway, that's the theater. I saw the first movie I ever saw with my wife in that theater. Oh, did you? What was it? What was the movie? It was, uh, um, uh, what was the movie where he's in love with his doll? Lars and the Real Girl. Yeah, Lars and the Real Girl. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, it was screening at at that theater, and I (laughs) serendipitously invited all of my friends from high school. (laughs) <laughs> because you know, sure. my I went to high school in Overland Park at Shawnee Mission West. Mm-hmm. And so the Glen Arts was like, that was my movie theater, the original one. Mm-hmm. was my movie theater, you know, it's where I spent my weekends uh, when I was in high school. And so I was like, oh, this is like a total freaking homecoming, right? Yeah. And right. in this movie, invite 
all of my friends from high school mm-hmm. who still live in the area and let's freaking show out and have a big time. Well, a lot of them came mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, they filled out the little cards and it ended up winning the audience award for the entire Kansas international film festival. Wow. <laughs> As a result, nice. the winner of the, international kansas international film festival circuit that audience award winner that winning gig you know the 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 award for that was that the film was to be given a week run officially on the books on the box office in that theater Ah. so it opened officially nationwide at the Glen Arts in fucking Overland Park, Kansas. <laughs> That's crazy. For a week, and exactly two people showed up. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the movie made $17, I think. Oh, wow. So that's your box office record. So that's how it ended up being the lowest grossing uh, film at the box office. Awesome. Oh, that's great. because like two people showed up to see it on its one week run. <laughs> so what pissed me off about it yeah. was that um, all these articles started coming out. There was even an article in the fucking New York Times <laughs> oh, came yeah. out about the worst Salt movie the of yeah. 2012. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, on wait, rewind? based on what? Rewind yeah. worst movie? You mean the lowest <laughs> gross? Gross. Right. Right. How do you on what planet do you equate quality with uh, you know box office returns? Right. And, and well, I'm, that's kind of tells you about the world we live in. Right. Yeah, well, how, how many Lamborghinis do they sell versus how many? Well, and also too, you I know? don't think people realize that, you know, that movies can have this entirely separate parallel life. That is a successful life outside mm-hmm. of mainstream uh, commercial, uh, the, the mainstream commercial Absolutely. Uh, machine yeah. that drives that industry. Right. Look at how many musical artists have huge careers, but were never a commercial success. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And then they, when, when the industry doesn't get it, they just call it a cult classic or a, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. That's and absolutely you know, right. On. You know, I mean, I think, you know, interestingly enough, those artists, uh, tend to be my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, artists <laughs> working. And I suppose that's probably, that's in my blood too. I mean, you know, just kind of going back full circle to Charlie Pierce, he is known mm. as um, the American, uh, the father of American independent cinema. What? And he's known as the father of uh, American independent cinema because he was really the first director to go rogue and right. make commercial um, commercial hits. I mean, big commercial hits. Mm. Uh, when you can say that your film is, you know, the the ninth or tenth grossing, highest grossing film in a box office year, uh, right? You have done everything yourself. That right. that that gives you the title of father or grandfather. <laughs> in, right. Right. It gives you some credibility for sure. Yeah. So you know that that that's. I kind of think I I've got that in my blood. My father was the same way. Uh, in terms of his uh, relentless uh, approach for doing things himself. I, it's a blessing and a curse. I will tell you that. I mean, I, I mm-hmm. see that in my companies, the companies that I run, the, uh, you know, I, I have to really be guarded and careful about how I approach a rehearsal process. If I'm performing, mm-hmm. 
how I manage my uh, daily tasks, uh, you know, like necessary things like getting laundry off and back and food prepared and, you know, accounts taken care of uh, because I have a very difficult time delegating. And, you know, so that's the curse part of it. But the, mm-hmm. the blessing part of it is that uh, I'm very pleased generally with uh, the end result of, of my work. But man, yeah, the delegation thing has got to, got to 2021. That's my sure. word for 2021 is delegate. Uh, I've got to start giving, giving, letting go of some of these ownership aspects, but mm-hmm. But yeah, it's in my blood. I mean, this idea that you uh, get out there, you you innovate your way through a thing, you create, you innovate, and you come up with the next big thing. It's a driving factor for me. I, it gets me off, you know? Yeah. Well, and that we help we help each other too in the community. And I think that's important. Um, absolutely, just let us know if there's anything we need to plug of yours or, or yeah, it's kind oh, of okay. or if you have any great ideas for you know getting podcasts out there, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's uh, that is uh, that's part of it, isn't it? It's it's uh-huh. how you know this is part of the marketing machine. It's how do we in this day and age leverage uh, the tools that we have in social media? How do we leverage the tools that we have in, you know, in terms of getting exposure? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, right. There's a big part of it, but of course, you know, you have to have something valuable uh, to say at the, at the heart of it. And I, yeah. I, uh, you know, that's something that I've been exploring in myself and, you know, just recently another project. I've got so many freaking projects, guys. But yeah. one of my uh, projects in terms of the uh, narrative narration aspect, audiobook narration, mm-hmm. is narrating. Uh, that was a stomach growl. Let me say that again. <laughs> <laughs> so one of my favorite uh you know, projects that I'm working on now is uh, tapping into the audiobook narration aspect, but that's narrating a story that I wrote. Uh, golly, I think I wrote it in uh, probably 91 or 92. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I it won a couple of awards. I had a couple of Professors say that I was I, I needed to seriously pers- pursue publication uh, because it was they thought it was really good. And I recently reread this story. It was I wrote it as just I wanted to write a ghost story. And mm-hmm. uh, so uh, I ended up writing. I, I just caught fire and wrote the story. And it wasn't the story story so much as the form that I, that I looked about it. I I guess it's what I love about 20th and 21st century uh, musical idioms and, you know, how Schoenberg and Berg totally changed things up with uh, 12 tone and, and created a new musical language. In effect, they created a puzzle for us to figure out. And Mm. I kind of wanted to do the same thing from a literature standpoint. I wanted to write a story that, caused the reader to be an active participant in the story in terms of trying to really put the pieces of the puzzle together to figure out what the damn thing was really all about. And I've had readers who've read it who are um, absolutely infuriated with it. Uh, (laughs) I've had friends who've read it and they're like, that's how it ends? What the fuck? (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, but 
the answers that you're seeking are in the story. You right. just have to look for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, so, but I, and then I've had other friends who are like, holy fuck, that is the most brilliant thing I've ever read. But right. it's really kind of fun. So I thought, wow, well, you know, I've got a box. Like, no, that's, that's a lie. I have like three or four gigantic boxes of, um, of writing. I mean, I've written mm-hmm. screenplays. I've written stage plays. I've written a couple of novels, countless short stories. I, I've been a prolific writer all of my life. And this one story uh, just called to me uh, about, uh, you know, right around the time of March, we were, you know, getting into the pandemic. And I, I was, I was like, I need to really start tapping into my body of work and seeing how I can start monetizing things. Yeah. And I think that's, that's critical for everyone right now. You know, if I could just make a little public service announcement to your listeners really quickly, please, please, please take a self-assessment, do a self-assessment, look at what you're good at doing. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Tap into your talents. We've got to start monetizing what we do because, because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's going to be, an individual based economy to a great extent when we come out of this and we need to prepare ourselves now for that. So, so it was a kind of a part of that, but I, I reread this story and I went, Holy cow, why am I not reading this? Like, like out loud, like narrating, narrating it. I mean, that's what I'm doing for other people. Why shouldn't I be doing that for my own work? I, I crawled into the studio and made my sat down and, I made myself read through the story and I thought, holy crap, I'm reading this better than I've read anybody else's work. Oh, well, yeah. Course, I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, it came from me. So I, and I'm also an actor and I'm a voice actor as well. So I, <laughs> it kind of like all of these things converged. And I thought, wow, how can I, how, what can I do with this? It's, it's got to be more than just an audio book. So then I started researching, thinking, what what ultimately what it's going to be it's going to be a multimedia app so it's going to be uh an app that uh i'm developing uh that is media rich so it's going to have of course the audio spoken audio narration with mm-hmm. light music uh scoring uh and then it's also going to be featuring some knockout illustrations by one of my favorite artists Elie Lanay. Um, he's a Mexican artist who is just, man, he's been featured at the Louvre. He's uh, oh, wow. right here at, in Long Beach and he's doing some fantastic work. And I'm, I'm just so thrilled to have him in my life, not, not just as a friend, but, you know, again, it's like uh, my life coach and friend, uh, you know, in, in New Jersey who happens to be my favorite soprano. Well, uh, Eddie happens to be one of my favorite artists and, um, that's awesome. He's, yeah. So he's doing, he's producing uh, a couple of full color uh, illustrations. He works mostly in oil and acrylic uh, <laughs> and uh, a lot of mixed, some mixed media, but he's, he's fantastic and he's doing some uh, pen and ink as well. So the, all of that's going to come together in an app that someone can download from their phone. Awesome. Well, that or from great. Uh, their iPad, and they can experience my story called "The Box." Um, <clears throat> yeah, but uh, that's a, well, that's a fun project that I'm. Yeah, no, that, that no, sounds, sounds like, like fun. fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you get anything rolling with that, and you need extra voiceover help, let us know. Sure, Often. we love yeah. shit like that. Here, 
wonderful to know. Do you know, life is full of um, unexpected surprises and unexpected, you know, just completely unexpected. I, what this reminds me of, I was taking a business flight for the company we used to work for to, it was Scranton. Yep. Scranton, Pennsylvania. So Western Pennsylvania and uh, trying to get back at, this would have been in the dead of winter, trying mm-hmm. to get back to uh, KC and the little plane I'm in. Uh, so it wasn't that little. I mean, there were, I think, 63 of us logged as passengers, mm-hmm. but it reached 20,000 feet cruising altitude when um, it lost all pressure. I mean, all Holy crap. compressed and started nosediving. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. And, uh, it, uh, and it was apparent to everybody that we were going down. And the captain, first time I ever recall having a female uh, pilot, got on, the, mm-hmm. uh, got on the PA system and said, uh, I just can remember just as plain as it's just clear, right? So clear in my mind because, you know, I think our brains record these kinds of experiences in ways yeah. that are actually probably encoded in our DNA and passed on to our offspring. Yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. which might account for, you know, it's a genetic memory is what they call it. And I think it might account for a lot of what we consider phobias now. Oh, they're yeah. actual, they're, they're reality based, but sure. uh, it, uh, she said very calmly, um, you know, we're, uh, the plane's going down um, and I'm going to try my best to uh, get us to the Harrisburg uh, airport um, safely and um, do what you need to do. Oh my God. Jesus Christ. Wow. You would imagine, anybody would imagine, I know I would have imagined that there would have been complete chaos in the, in the cabin of that plane. Right. It was stone cold silent. Mm-hmm. It was not, wow. you couldn't hear anyone breathe. Wow. I mean, it was just the silence is what I remember as the plane's going down, as fucking the oxygen masks are dropping. And we've just been told that the plane's, going down it's going to make an emergency landing and not a sound Hmm. it's that that's unexpected you know i mean that's the first time i remember thinking wow that's not how it would be in a movie (laughs) right right (laughs) but you know everybody was doing what i was doing i think you know thinking thinking yeah um you know we all got drunk Boys, boys, let me tell you, that plane landed at Harrisburg. There were news. There were there were news trucks. We were on uh, the evening news. There were. I mean, what had happened was, I guess a, it, it was either an ice pellet or a bird or a combination of an ice pellet and a bird had shattered the cockpit window. Oh my, I oh my god! We walked out of that thing and looked back, and there was a hole the size of a basketball. Jeez. In the cockpit of that, yeah. Wow, imagine, that's an amazing pilot. Then exactly, imagine piloting that. Um, and uh, so we all, you know, they they put us up at a uh, at a the little whatever it was, Ramada, whatever. And uh, we, man, first place, all of us Jeez. went so far. Yeah, right. That yeah. was like there, there, was no, wow. there was no stop, no passing go. None. I don't even think we even went to our rooms. We were right yeah, at the oh, bar, yeah. and we got to know each other. You know. Yeah. Then I mean, we all kind of just wow. stood around and went, "Holy fuck, we just survived that." Together. That's crazy. 
yeah, and it created this bond. Some of us even uh, wrote to each other uh, a little bit, but that was that was early. It was before social media, so it was before right. you know. I mean, we didn't imagine in this day and age we'd be together for oh, life, yeah. right? But I've right, but that. yeah, and that interesting moment of. I don't know if there's kind of an acceptance that comes to it. And I've, I've been through something, not the same, but I remember being, I was clobbered, you know, uh, by a drunk driver uh, one time and I walked away from it. I was very lucky. What do you mean clobbered? Like, reach, like some driver? Like, like um, I was on I-35 actually uh, coming back home and there was a huge traffic jam. It was on the Kansas side. Um, and you could see it, the traffic jam from like a mile back. It was like really, really obvious in the car. So I stop and this driver behind me doesn't notice it until the last second. And like literally, oh, geez. I I realize what's happening when I hear and everything yeah. just goes into slow motion. And I, I look in the mirror and I just realize there is absolutely not a fucking thing that you can do about this yeah Yeah. right you are completely just at the whim of the moment and you might as well just relax and it it was slow motion but i'm sure it was actually very fast but it really felt like time slowed down so instead of stressing over it i was just like fuck i just gotta go with this yeah i wonder if that saved your life because you know it might have like i relaxed did um were you what were the injuries like? i had no my car was totaled but you, you like and i realized that, like i didn't i wasn't hurt my my back was sto- sore you know i went to a chiropractor for a while mm-hmm. but that was it yeah, but like it could have been, been so much worse i mean my know. car was an accordion like my driver's seat was just like the back of it and i you know i didn't even realize it until i got out like holy shit it won't come back up yeah so Do it hit know, hard enough to fuck up my driver's seat. Are you a, are you a singer? No, I mean I'm I asking. Was, I you know, trained singers. Uh, I think we would fare better in uh, car crashes and that sort of thing, just quite simply because we, um, you know, we go through extensive training, at least in opera, on uh, you know Alexander technique, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, these uh, exercises and practice practices that um, allow us to to not utilize our musculature or um, our energy uh, without purpose or intent Mm -hmm. so that we're not over utilizing aspects of our body that we don't need to. Yeah. Well, the acting can kind of be the same thing. And I've, I've got, you know, a degree in theater and I did choir and stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, It stems from acting. Alexander, you know, stems from, from acting. Um, John Alexander was an actor, but it was, uh, but it, that, that learning to make efficient use of one's body, I think, especially in times of anxiety or stress, you know, where you're, because you've, practiced over and over and mm-hmm. over again to uh to relax at exactly those moments can be probably life-saving in terms of yeah you know i mean uh, or at least not debilitating if yeah. in a certain 
in certain circumstances. But <clears throat> no, it was just, and it was just instinct, really. Just like you get, you got no choice. You got to go with this. Yeah, right. Yeah, I I agree with that. I I, I mean, I felt the same way. I had an accident uh, in Northridge, uh, and uh, an automotive transport truck. You know, one of those gigantic oh, God, uh, yeah. trucks that transports mm-hmm. uh, cars was I was on the 34 I was going to Burbank from uh the northern from Northridge uh from up in the valley well all of it's in the valley and I look in my rearview mirror I'm driving the speed limit I'm looking in the rearview mirror and this automotive transport truck is getting closer and closer and faster and faster mm-hmm. tail and I'm like, what the fuck is this thing doing? And I'm like, I feel like I need to speed up. So I'm kind of speeding up just because I didn't want him to crash. But then he sped up faster than I sped up. And he rammed me from behind. I mean, what just plowed into me on the freeway. And totaled my car. But wow. in situations where it was like Duel or one of those, you know, the Spielberg yeah. It's like it was like yeah. one of these movies where you'd like I'm looking in the rearview mirror and I'm seeing what's about to happen, right? I know mm. it's going to happen. This guy is going to plow into me, and I, right. I I I see it in I see it happening. I just know it's going to happen. So like you, it was like one of those moments where it's like <gasps> nice big singer breath and just lean into it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Mm. Yeah, but so I, so I totally get that. And that probably saved me from some uh, pretty serious wow. physical issues. But all right. So everybody just relax. Breathe. Yeah, just relax. Yes. Breathe. Yes. And the plane's not going down yet. Right. No, no. And it'll, it'll, you know, we'll, it's gonna be different after Tuesday. So we'll just sure. absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Oh, that's probably so a good place to yeah, bring yeah. it to a close. Time. I had a great time, Aaron. It's good to get to know yeah. you. John, fantastic. Matt. Yeah. Man, it's been too long since we, we actually caught up. So I'm really glad I'm that glad we got, got a chance to do, to do that. Yeah. And how fun to be able to do it uh, through this medium. You know, I mean, yeah. it, yeah. it's yeah. really fun. Yeah. And when it's all cleared up and you're stopping back in KC, we'll, we'll grab a drink. Sounds great. Uh, that sounds fantastic. I, I have so many great places I remember that I love there. Yeah. You uh, took me to a few of them. I did. Oh, good. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably a, that's probably a sign that we had a blast. <laughs> <laughs> we had some fun. All right. So, what was the one place I loved at Union Station uh, Point? Uh, oh, Pierpont's. Pierpont's. Love it. God, love that place. Yeah. Yeah. And John, you're in uh, Columbia. In Columbia. Yeah, yep. you're in Columbia. Mm-hmm. With a U. Yes. With a U. Yep. <laughs> Not that far south, but yeah. Right. Just well, gentlemen, uh, it's been fantastic. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. You're right. Yep. Everybody again, Aaron Ball. Thank you for joining us on Undetermined, the podcast. Everybody uh, have a happy Halloween and uh, a happy good Halloween. night. Thank you for Are having you? me. Thanks. Everybody uh, keep your eyes peeled for phantom killers and things that go bump in the night. <laughs> Ciao, gentlemen. All right. Ciao. All right. Bye. Um, nice. I, I heard a huge organ. <laughs> oh gosh. Dog it. I didn't mean to talk about myself again. Uh, it's just, Oh no, we saw the we we saw the opera scene, so <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Shit, I'll never. No, it was a, it was the choice. It was a choice, but you know what? It was the director's choice. It, it was ultimately my choice, but it was the director's. Of course, that's what the director wanted. That production was really a freaking cool production. Uh, it was uh, the. Principal influences for that production were the two Fellini films, La Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so it was very, very firmly set in 1962. And uh, so I even had a 1962 VW bug that was like one of the Italian release bugs. Oh, nice. Yeah. So it it was a convertible and I drove it on stage at the top of the second. Yeah, it was so freaking awesome. It was just a really freaking cool production. But but yeah, the director, you know, he he said, okay, (laughs) it's like early in the rehearsal process. And and he said, "Um, here's my idea. I mean, you know, (laughs) you just came out of a a sexual assault situation that kind of was kind of wasn't, you know, she was into it. And then last minute she freaks out and, uh, starts screaming and you're just coming out of her. I mean, you've just so that's, had that's sex. That's the scene. That's the right? scene where like, you're trying to seduce the command the Terry's daughter. And like you, uh, yeah, you yeah. Well, I mean, well, I don't, right? I don't think it's this. Yeah. 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 So I, I've yeah. just come out of her bedroom. We've just right. fucked. Okay. And right. so, you know, he's got to fucking get the hell out of there. So mm-hmm. it kind of made sense. It's like, well, you know, he's not really going to have time to put on his fucking pants. Right. So, I mean, it just, it really did make sense. And then when you really think about the setting in 1960 and we set it in Rome in, uh, you know, downtown, uh, downtown Rome, close to the, close to the fountain. Right. And, uh, so yeah, it was just, it was really cool. You said there were some, uh, addendums that you wanted to put on to, uh, yeah. Uh, Boggy Creek and, uh, and, uh, Town of the Dreaded Sundown. So first of all, the cat, let's address that. Yeah. So, right. Everybody yeah. loves the freaking cat in that movie. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I, when I was doing a lot of the Q and A's for the 4k revival screenings, uh-huh. Um, I didn't do any of the Alamo Draft House screenings. I mean, I played all of the Alamo Draft Houses uh, across the country right. last year. And then, uh, you know, we, I was telling Matt, we, we uh, premiered the 4K restoration at the Perot Theater, which was the theater the movie actually premiered at in 72. And in Texarkana, so, right? In Texarkana, yeah. So this was, this was only the second time i'd seen that movie in that theater and probably the fourth time i'd been to that theater beautiful used to be old uh paramount uh studios theater that um you know they completely overhauled during the silent era and that's (laughs) and put a really nice big organ in it Uh, yeah so um in my experience in going (laughs) and seeing audiences reactions the responses during the screenings of these uh this film which is not like if you, you know everybody who is used to a seen who has seen boggy creek uh-huh. the memories of that movie will probably be based on these horrible third fourth fifth sixth generation right bootleg copies or prints most of them mm-hmm. derivative from television prints which of course is an improper aspect ratio the colors shot you can't even make heads or tails out of some of the some of the, I mean, it was like seeing 
a freaking brand new movie. I mean, it was just the, the it's just cinematography. The, the, the direction's fantastic. But anyway, my experience is <laughs> that um, audiences have a real response to that cat that it's, yeah, it's a laugh right. out loud moment, right? You see uh-huh. this, this cutaway of this terrified cat that was supposedly scared to death. Scared to death. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and it's just fucking funny. Well, it was supposed to be funny, right? Sure. So it wasn't, I mean, it was <laughs> my father as production designer and art director, his biggest uh, challenge with that was finding a dead cat. First of all, because, you, know, you, right. you can't, you can't kill a cat. <laughs> right. So he had to find a dead cat and none of the dead cats that he found <laughs> looked as though they had been scared to death. Jesus. You know, he, he had to have, right. and it, so he found one that came close. Uh-huh. And he um, tried to twist it and bend it and get it in the right shape. And it just crackled and popped. And, oh, I, it, it, you know, it was just, it was stiff and it, it basically crumbled, right. uh, crumbled mm-hmm. uh, away. So what he figured out, I don't know how he figured it out. If he just, you know, it was my father. He, he was like a crazy MacGyver when it comes to the sort of thing. Mm-hmm. He, he figured out that if he froze the cat, like frozen, like got it ice frozen uh-huh. and then set it out to thaw again, that it would become malleable and he could mm. shape it into whatever fucking shape he wanted. That's crazy. <laughs> so he basically got the cat to look exactly the way he wanted by freezing it and thawing it out again. <laughs> oh my gosh. But everybody probably lasted longer it. that way too. <laughs> probably. So. I think it was right around, it was the very next film, maybe. It might have been the one before that. Uh, well, the, the, the Boggy Creek was first. Yeah, it might have been the one after that. It might have been Winds of Autumn or the Bootleggers, probably Winds of Autumn, where he started having to put the, the disclaimers. Yeah, on his yeah. Films, mm-hmm. You know, but my father really de- honed a craft in. Uh, in working with dead animals in these films mm. throughout the 70s, you know, Grey Eagle, and he got wow. really good at it. Yeah, yeah. But um, all of the animals, you know, none of them were harmed at the time of the filming. <laughs> they, I mean, you know, <laughs> right. all of them were roadkill, so my father did take right. most of them off the side of the road. But, wow. Um, but yeah, so that's the story behind the cat. The other thing, you know, that I think really excites people, gets people energized because not many people realize that this was Ralph McQuarrie's first work as um, a movie poster illustrator. So this was his very first movie poster that he did. And he pretty much everything after Boggy Creek, he painted in acrylic specifically for graphic design printing, but Mm -hmm. Boggy Creek was his only oil painting. So that is actually an oil on canvas and it's a freaking gorgeous painting. Oh, it's a beautiful painting. Yeah. It's a very iconic image. Yeah. Pam was able to uh, acquire the original painting that the poster was printed from. Wow. And yeah. And we actually, uh, had that uh, displayed there in Texarkana last year. But the great thing about Ralph, uh, he's, uh, you know, he, for the people who don't aren't familiar with his body of work was the production designer and concept artist for all of the star Wars films. So uh, for Lucas, so he basically created the look 
for all of these iconic characters, C-3PO, R2-D2, Chewbacca. Well, you know, mm-hmm. it, Chewbacca, of course, um, you can draw a through line from the Falcon Monster to Chewbacca several mm-hmm. years later as really being uh, the Chewbacca's prototype. So right. Ralph was really, you know, that was his concept art. That was his idea um, that eventually developed into Chewbacca. My father, as art director, of course, was tasked with taking McQuarrie's concept in design and then and then actually uh, transferring it to the screen and making it something that that was photographable and wow. uh, that looked somewhat real. And so, my father actually constructed that that ape suit. You know, it was an ape suit. It was like an ape. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a, yeah. An ape suit, but it was outfitted. Of course, he he put hair on it. He put a wig on it. He did all sorts of crazy things to it to get it to its final. What well, what we see today in the screen. Put it in the freezer. Yeah. So when yeah. So when we're <laughs> right. So when we're hey, if you ever come across a bigfoot, and you know you, you need one hell of a big freezer for that. You know, right. it's, but it's uh you know I think it's it's really interesting to see these uh, this butterfly effect, if you will, in cinema yeah. that has. Uh, you know, I mean, we wouldn't have Chewbacca had we not had the preliminary concept work for uh, the Falcon Monster from Macquarie, and we would not have docudrama if we didn't have the invention of it from Charles Pierce uh, in this highly successful, and still today, probably the most successful independent film ever yeah. made yeah. Uh, wow. in terms of in terms of box office. So, yeah, those those are those are those are things. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, very impressive things. Interesting. Yeah, did you ever have a prints made of the uh, of the oil painting? Or yeah, there have been new prints made. So you can go to thelegendabuggycreek dot com. I think it's just legendabuggycreek dot com, which is where Pam okay. and uh, my really really great friend Lyle Blackburn. Lyle actually runs that website, and uh, he is responsible for all of the merch, including the the new Blu-rays, uh, before they get licensed for distribution. There are several distribution deals for major retailers uh, for the Blu-ray that are in the works right now. But but right now, you can get your hot clutches on the Blu-ray mm-hmm. by going to that website, including merch, including, I believe, the new uh, prints, the new poster prints that have been struck oh, cool. from the, um, from the wow. opening. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'd love that to have one in the house. Yeah. yeah. Well, you'll have to sign it for us. I'd sure, love to. I, you know, there are a lot of, a uh, lot of those things floating around out there. Uh, so yeah, Lyle uh, runs that. Yeah. Check out Lyle Blackburn and uh, Ghoul Town too. Uh, yeah, for sure. Shameless, yes. Yeah. Shameless plug for them. Lyle, uh, you know, I stay with him every time I go over to, when I go visit that neck of the woods, uh, my cousins are there as well. I have family still there in the mm-hmm. Texarkana area, Dallas and Texarkana. Yeah. East we've Texas. got a lot of Dallas friends of the yeah. podcast. Yeah. So. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so they would be very familiar then probably with Lyle. He's uh, comes from a tradition of horror uh, rock so mm-hmm. you know, you think about the Misfits, you think about uh, mm-hmm. you know a lot of these uh, quintessential horror rock bands, mm-hmm. and so Ghoul Town is very much steeped in that tradition. But they're just doing some really crazy stuff, and I think his album, yeah, no, his album, new new album, it's been a couple of years, just released a couple of uh, days ago, three about three nice. or four days ago. Yeah, check it out. Yeah, I, I have a quick question. Sure. Yeah. So, did your dad ever travel with the dead cat? Did he travel with the cat? 
Yeah, I'm just oh, curious. I'm like, sure that as soon as that cat was shot, I'm sure it was exposed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I cannot imagine that cat. Uh, saying, I just hey, wondered, yeah. you know, would you pack that away or would it be carrying? <laughs> oh. Oh, God. Yes. The longest setup yes. for a Matt. The longest setup for a Matt pun. That was, that was excellent, oh. my friend. Excellent. Oh. I think my tongue is pushed through my cheek. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go check the mirror. Oh, it's strained. I know that. I don't no. know, but it, it also, you know, it just would have been ended up being dead weight. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would have been catastrophic. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, no catastrophic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Not to pussyfoot around the subject. I mean, yeah. Jeez. Oh, now we're doing. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm stopping it right there. Killing me. You're killing me. <laughs> I'm making walking a feline for the walking door. Walking a fine feline. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All, right. <clears throat> All right. We we've we've exhausted that. I think. Kelly. Yeah. I I think the moment he said it. Yeah. What else did I say? I wanted to touch base on. It was just those two points, right? I think. Yeah. I think it was. But that's really cool. Yeah. That's, that's interesting cool. stuff. Yeah. I it's it. fun. I mean, the fans love it. I'm <clears> trying to think. Was there anything? Yeah. There's so many uh, fun little stories about the movie uh, that we've been sharing and talking about, you know, since I reunited with my screen mother and all of uh-huh. our, uh, you know, the, the cast. It's been a lot of fun. We initially went to Dallas. This would have been in 2015, 16. Let's see. The George Eastman Museum started restoration work on this. I want to say in 20, uh, would have been early 2018, I think. Yeah. So it had to have been that summer because 2019 would have been when we premiered the, the, the restoration. So Mm -hmm. it was probably, yeah, yeah. Probably a little year or some months before that where, uh, you know, a bunch of us went back to work with a production crew in Texarkana to do mm-hmm. interviews for the behind the scenes, you know, the special features. Mm. And oh, I, know, I did want to let you know, by the way, uh, when you had told me, it's like, uh, no, you're watching the restoration, right? You're not watching the old one because yeah, 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 yeah. it's like, if you go, if you have a Roku device, uh-huh. um, do check it out because there are some shitty old recordings that, that are being uh, thrown around on Roku. I didn't really? rent that one. Yeah, they're free. They're actually on like Freeview uh, type apps. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, like I'll, I'll make sure and uh, yeah, so. I'll make sure and get that information to Pam. Pam's yeah. been like super diligent about. Yeah, uh, have Pam. You go can through, see why. Yeah, and and have her go through a Roku stick and just hit a Roku search, and it'll show you like there's these you know these fly by night kind of apps that that have all sorts of Freeview stuff that are just filled sure. with ads and everything else. But uh, there are some still flying around out there. I didn't okay. rent that oh. one. I mean, I rented the one through Apple, but that's good. Uh, that's good to know. I mean, I have yeah. I have an Apple TV, and I, I I have a friend who has a Roku, but I mm-hmm. yeah I think Apple TV kind of does the same sort of thing. Yeah, I, well, I've got a Roku TV, but it has the Apple. I mean, I bought the Apple app and things like that, so I can get. Uh, okay both but yeah i didn't notice that there's like mm, there are still a bunch it's of gonna, those, you know like, they're popping up copy. every once in a while they pop up you know it's kind yeah. of uh, there yeah it's like as soon as you take down everything you think you've taken it all down yeah. and then five whack them up somewhere it's the hydra yeah. yeah it is well you know and it's 
not uh, surprising with this film because you know for i mean it was it's listed iconic. as being in the public domain for god's sake for for a yeah. number of years and right. then it just went crazy because it was never monitored it was never mm-hmm. you know there was never um there was nothing ever really happening with the film pam pam really didn't it would have this awakening uh, right. until you know a couple of things well first of all fans started 40 years later to everybody. you know, the fans are like, we would, why isn't there not a restoration of this iconic film? Right. And so she was hearing a lot from fans, from people. And so she finally went uh, back to uh, Steve Ledwell, Buddy Ledwell's son, who's taken over the trucking business, right? Without a mm-hmm. Buddy Ledwell, mm-hmm. you'll recall, there would never have been a Boggy Creek. Right. Um, in terms of the uh, completion financing. And well, her son, uh, his son ended up with some of the uh, original prints. They didn't have, I don't think they had any camera negatives, but they had a lot of archival stuff. And then he still had the copyright, which he graciously gave to uh, to Pam. Wow. Uh, that was, yeah. that was very nice of him. Well, yeah, because, you know, who else was going to do something with this? The, the uh, trunking, trucking company wasn't, and Pam right. was. And, you know, she is pretty much the gatekeeper for the, for the estate and yeah. for her father's legacy. So it was just a real labor of love, and it was an expensive project. Uh, you know, it's, sure. it's not cheap to have these films restored. Ironically, where they found the most pristine print, so most of the elements that you see in the restoration are mm-hmm. um, elements from a pr- an archival print from the BFI. And the reason for that is because in the UK, I don't know if it's still a policy, but it's certainly through the 70s, uh, it was a policy that if any foreign film were to be screened, any screen, any film not a British film or not a UK film, uh-huh. um, that was going to be screened in the UK the BFI had to have an archival print that had never been run through a projector that they kept in storage and in archives. So come to find out, of course, Boggy Creek, when it played in the UK, when it it screened in the UK, they had a pristine, never run through the projector millimeter print. Yeah. So um, a lot of the preservation efforts were based on those elements. Mm-hmm. I was waiting for you to say they found like an old canister in the swamp and there it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, they did find 10 reels of uh, outtakes. Nice. Yeah. And um, actually, I got to see just a little bit of it from George Eastman Museum. It's really cool. I was able to see my dad on set and uh, mm-hmm. kind of doing his thing, which is really oh, that's bizarre. Nice. You know, yeah. because, I mean, I, I think he was, uh, let's see, he was 23 at the time. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, twenty. No, he was twenty-two. I think yeah, twenty twenty-two. Not even just a baby. Well, yeah. Let's see. No, that's not true. He was twenty-three, but twenty-three or twenty-four. He and Charlie were around the same age. My parents were young when they had me too. They were twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two when they had me. So no generation gap that way, you know. It's nice. Uh, It was definitely definitely far-reaching. I mean, like I say, I was well aware of the film before, you know, Matt uh, uh, told me about your role in it. But it's, uh, you know, I can remember driving down that way. And and I was born in northern Illinois, but my father took us down there fishing at one point. And he's like, you know, this is Falk, Arkansas. Well, as a matter of fact, kids, it's a little off the road. We're going to go through Falk, Arkansas, or we can 
you know. Well, you know, one thing, Lyle, monster. It was, you know, yeah. One thing, my my buddy Lyle is uh, the he's the keeper of all of the sighting information, the database sighting, and there's still sightings to this day. Oh yeah. So yeah. yeah, So he's got he's written a book called The Beast of Boggy Creek. Uh, he's written another book called uh, Moman, a moment, the Moma. He's it's the, uh, yeah, Missouri, the Missouri monster, monster yeah. you know? mm-hmm. uh, which mm-hmm. is, I think, uh, one of his newest books. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, he's, he's awesome. I mean, he's just great. So I, yeah, I, I love going with, with Lyle, uh, when I'm down there because he he'll camp out in the swamps. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's hardcore, man. I mean, it's it's just really kind of hardcore. You know, he's had uh, he's been featured on the Animal Planet on the Discovery Channel and oh, you know, yeah. a lot of a lot of different shows because he is uh, he's a monster hunter basically. Yeah. See, and, if you don't uh, stop with them, I, I'd love to hear some yeah. Momo stories and, and, and stuff. Yeah. It's uh, yeah around California, Missouri, in that area was uh, Momo. Yeah, it's yeah. it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. There's certain states that have these. Uh, quintessentially legend, uh, legendary, mm-hmm. unexplained creatures. Um, there's what's the one that Illinois has one? What the one that flies through the air? What's that? Uh, the moth? The, uh, oh God, what's it called? Like the Pusca or the? Yeah, 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 the, yeah, so, yeah. Is that, that it? Is that it? The, uh, the Pusca so that, or something like that? Yeah, it's a like the uh, the kind of a condor type uh, or uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. crazy crazy and then you know i mean so there 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 are people who really do delve into the original reporting and mm-hmm. try and find consensus and common denominators from one report to the other which there are i mean you know i mean i think that's what makes these stories not only continue to to be told and people continue to believe in it it's because you know there is there are kernels of truth to it and you know what's i've always said it, people have asked me throughout the past couple of years, especially since the movie's seen a, a rebirth. Uh, <laughs> they've asked me, um, you know, well, do you believe in uh, right. the Valk monster? Do you believe in a, mm. in a big, yeah. it's like, a, what do you, what do you think about that? And I, I have to think about it. And I, I, my answer is yes. And the reason why my answer is yes, is because I believe that once something enters the social consciousness, right? Mm. So we now, this is a part of our reality. The Falk monster, Bigfoot is part of our reality. It's because we continue to tell the stories. We continue to keep it alive. And it, like mythology, like all good mythology does inherently, I think, the more those stories get told, the more archetypical they become. And the more in a kind of Jungian way get tied Mm -hmm. into our psyches, and manifest themselves in ways like, well, for example, a lot of our horror uh, creatures have, like the, the Wolfman. I'm, I'm really, really delving into aspects of the Wolfman right now. I'm writing an album about, it's more like a Bluebeard's Castle kind of concept, right? Where it's more like, it's not about the supernatural Wolfman that I'm writing. It's more about what makes the Wolfman scary that is in every man, Right. That is kind of human. One one of the songs, for example, is called Stay Away. Right. It's about this man who's who's pleading with his his uh, his girlfriend to, you know, he he's going to change and she has got to do everything she can to stay away from him. You know, despite their relationship, he's she's she's got a key. She's got to lock him up. She's got to chain him up. She's got to do whatever she can to get away from Mm -hmm. him because he will kill her. And it's really not about mm-hmm. a 
werewolf situation, which is a very werewolf situation. Mm. It's actually about a real situation, right? It's about how we always live. I think everybody lives with, um, you know, some kind of a dark side that they have to negotiate. And Mm -hmm. to be honest enough to reveal that to someone whom you love Mm -hmm. deeply is it's a terrifying thing and it yeah, makes a person incredibly vulnerable to um to attack to emotional destruction you know to a lot of different things and so really that's kind of what it what it's about and i guess the yeah, whole album is about that you know yeah, it's, really, it's about Nietzsche and the, yeah yeah, kind of yeah. The yeah. concept of the duality of man yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's 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 a little ex- existential i think uh mm-hmm. from that in that respect for sure yeah yeah man we we've got to have you back on talk about that talk yeah. about uh uh oh my god like dna memory and i mean we touched on that a little bit right, but, uh, right. yeah yeah which I'm, I'm really fascinated by all that shit. Um, but yeah, we've got to have you back on just to, just awesome. to shoot the Sounds shit about that. It'd be great to do. I'd love to come back on. You guys are fantastic. Yeah. You've been well, a highlight you. for me. So thanks. 